Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Mary Harris. This is Only Human. And today's show is for skeptics like me and like the guy sitting across from me. Who is me, Kurt Anderson. (laughs) Kurt's the host of a great show called Studio 360 right down the hall from us. It's about arts and culture. And this week, you roped me into something kind of crazy. That sounds more interesting than perhaps it is. But yes, I did rope you into something kind of crazy, which is this class in laughter yoga, the premise of which is that laughing by itself can make you healthier. Yeah, a bunch of people get into a room for like 30 minutes and they laugh at each other, basically. Exactly. And with each other. Now, I was skeptical of going into a small room with strangers and forcing myself to laugh. Yes. Might it have health benefits? I was open to that possibility. So we took this class to try to figure out whether laughter really can make us healthier. For real. Oh, here we are. This is is fancier. Oh, here we are. So this laughter yoga class was like no yoga class I've ever been to. It wasn't in a in a fancy studio. There were no mats. There were not a lot of young, limber, beautiful people around me. It was in this sort of uh, nondescript high-rise basement in Times Square. This is sort of like the dentists. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was actually a chiropractor's office that set aside this little space. There were some, like, weight machines in the corner. And there were, like, a dozen people, most of them over the age of 70, probably. Yes. Even I was on the younger age of the spectrum, and you were, like, the child. In the- <laughs> I'm so busy, but I intend to laugh. <laughs> so some of them had been coming here for years. I've been doing it for about, oh, two and a half years. I have been doing this for a couple of years. I've been doing it for six years. I've lost track of how many years I've been doing this. I feel more centered and calm in my life. So it sort of blocks out everything else. Uh, I had such severe back pain that I would say to people, hug me virtually. And not only did the back pain leave, but the memory of the back pain left. I have a doctorate in geriatric studies, and it's really great for your immune system. I do not get sick. Okay, folks, let's all get together. So just to set the scene here a little bit, these were people sort of standing around in their street clothes, and they gathered around in a circle, and then they started laughing. I first want to say uh, there's no wrong way to laugh. That was Jonathan Applefield. He's the guy who led our laughter yoga class. So if you don't feel like it, we fake it. We fake it till we make it, okay? So we're just going to start with... Okay, before we take you through the rest of this class, before we even stepped into the room, I was just like, where did this idea come from? And it turns out it comes from this really interesting place. It didn't start as yoga at all. The inspiration for laughter yoga came from this famous writer and magazine editor named Norman Cousins. In the 1960s, he got this mysterious illness. He was in a lot of pain and he was bedridden. He had these nodules that were like gravel under his skin. So he gets this kind of grim diagnosis from a doctor. But he decides to check out of the hospital and go into a hotel room. And he did this because he thought the hospital wasn't particularly clean and the food wasn't really good either. And he'd read about the connection between stress and health problems. He became a little bit obsessed with the idea 
that the inverse had to be true too, that positive emotions could heal him. And the most positive emotion of all is laughter. So he stopped taking his medication and he set up a film projector and just starts watching movies like the Marx Brothers. I could dance with you till the cows come home. On second thought, I'd rather dance with the cows than you come home. I made the very interesting discovery that 10 minutes of good belly laughter uh, would give me two hours of pain-free sleep. This is a recording of Cousins from 1974. I got rid of the painkillers, the codeine, the sleeping pills. And as I say, I discovered that laughter did produce a natural body anesthesia. This kind of sounds like magical thinking to me, but studies have actually reproduced this effect. Laughing does increase the pain threshold. Cousins wrote a whole book about his experience. He called it Anatomy of an Illness. It was a huge bestseller. And one copy ended up in the hands of a doctor halfway around the world. Now, the reason we call it laughter yoga, because we combine laughter exercises with deep breathing techniques from yoga. This is the inventor of laughter yoga. He's a guy named Dr. Madan Kataria. He invented it in Mumbai in 1995. He cites Norman Cousins as his inspiration. Now thousands of people practice it all over the world. That brings more oxygen to our body and brain and makes us feel more healthy and more energetic. So the subjective experience of feeling better after laughter, while you're laughing, I have no doubt about that. What I wondered about, is there some measurable physical effect of of laughter? So I went to an actual expert, a neuroscientist named Robert Provine at the University of Maryland, and he says that to start understanding how laughter works, we've got to look at why humans started laughing at the first place. And that's actually Professor Provine. Uh, being one of the three species of chimpanzees, I'm, I'm qualified to give you a sample of chimp laughter. Uh, the human ha-ha had its origin in the chimpanzee pant-pant sound. Chimps laugh? Chimps do laugh. And in fact, the other thing I discovered, and of course, they're primates, we're primates, that is not so crazy, but also rats laugh, they told me. What? Rats laugh. No. Does it sound like anything? All I want to know about it is the rats laughing yes. now. <laughs> Well, laughter is a signal we send to other people to change their behavior. It's a sign that this is about play. I'm not attacking you. In fact, laughter is literally the sound of ritualized, uh, heavy breathing of rough-and-tumble play. What Dr. Provine and his team does is go out into public places and eavesdrop and watch people as they talk and as they occasionally chuckle and laugh during their conversations and write down how often they laugh, what makes them laugh. Um, He's the Kinsey of laughter. There you go. Uh, and, And what he's found isn't exactly what you would think. What most people said uh, before laughter occurred wasn't anything that was remotely jokey. Perhaps only 10 to 15 percent of all pre-laugh comments are uh, remotely jokey. They're like, hey, where have you been? (laughs) Or, where'd you get that shirt? Or, I've got to go now. (laughs) Not very good uh, sitcom material there. Okay, so we tend to laugh more to just kind of make other people feel good. And I have to say that when we started talking about this, I realized I do this all the time. So I've now discovered that people aren't laughing at my jokes, but uh, they're <laughs> laughing to make me feel 
wanted and loved and and liked. And there is a term for this in the literature and in the science. It's called social laughter versus spontaneous laughter. You and I may call it fake laughter versus real laughter, but most laughter is social laughter. So you talked to another expert about yes, this. Yes, I did indeed. Another neuroscientist, uh, Sophie Scott at University College London, who has scanned people's brains to see what happens when they and we hear other people laughing. What we see in the brain is there's actually more response to social laughter than there is to spontaneous laughter. There's lots of activation to spontaneous laughter and it's strongly associated with auditory processing, probably because you hear sounds you never hear in any other context. But when you listen to social laughter, and this isn't a situation where we didn't tell people what to do, they're just, they're just hearing sounds and mm-hmm. some of them are laughs and some of them are authentic and some of them are social. Um, you get all these activations in brain areas associated with thinking about what other people think. When you hear somebody going, ah, ha, 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 you know that is a fake laugh at some level. Right. And you are trying to work out why that person is producing that behavior. How there is an intention behind it. You know, maybe they're in pain. Maybe they're trying to cover up being embarrassed. Maybe they're trying to make somebody like them. Maybe they're trying to get out of a problem. You know, all this different stuff, that sort of stuff we do with social laughter. I think this is just a sign that um, we just keep coming back to with laughter, which is it's never neutral. Right. It's always meaningful. And we're trying to work out what that meaning is. Uh, Mary, you, you you were a big pot smoker in your time, I have no doubt, right? Oh, yeah, I look it, right? <laughs> um, well, you don't not look it. Anyhow, I, I'm sure you know, uh, being a, a sentient being, that uh, smoking marijuana often causes people to laugh uncontrollably. Uh, and I asked Professor Scott if she knew why that was, and she had a, a very interesting answer. I suspect that the main basis for it is actually that a lot of what's going on day to day, minute to minute in your brain is trying to stop you from laughing because there are many situations where it would not be appropriate to get completely hilariously giggly. You are actually suppressing it. So it just disinhibits this thing we would be doing all the time if we could. Probably, yes. I love that idea that we're just laughing animals and and just we're we're just keeping it tamped down all the time. Uh, Yeah, I suspect so. Yeah. (laughs) So laughing animals is kind of appropriate because back in the yoga class, we're going back there. We were standing there and doing this really like over the top fake laughter. And this is before we were actually told to pretend to be animals, wasn't it? Oh, no, it's coming. Oh, okay. Well, no laughter yoga would be complete without the lion of all laughters. So let's do the lion laughter. What does a lion have? Claws. So let's see your claws. Yeah, that is Kurt and me roaring like, like lions. lions. And I can still do it. <laughs> You're kind of into it. I, I, I was, and I am. <laughs> okay, we felt kind of ridiculous, but everyone around us was having a great time. They were, and they, most, almost all of them, I think, had been there before with each other, so there was a more familiarity. And, and maybe they really are, apropos Professor Scott, just unleashing this natural laugh-all-the-time uh, animalistic impulse. <laughs> They're just letting it all hang out. That's the idea. And there was this come down, like when you're at the end of yoga class, you know how you all you sit there in shavasana, like the, the, you the mellow out. The best part of yoga. Yeah, exactly. Um 
this has its own version of that. We're going to return back to the room. Uh, if a neuroscientist were here, they might say we were in a very high state of relaxation, perhaps the highest state of relaxation. So if you feel so inclined, go around and give each other an embrace. <laughs> oh, we did it. Yes. Oh. <laughs> this is kind of terrifying. I'm having a terrible laughter yoga flashback. I think that's technically called PTSD. Well, or light, anyway. It, it was slightly awkward, especially the hugging the strangers as you're faking the laughter. Two awkward things combined into one. But there was this one person there who, like, totally had our number. My name is Lisa, and I heard you say this is terrifying since December. Well, I have to say that I sat for the whole first session going, I thought everybody could see the flashing light because all I was thinking is, this is so stupid. This is so stupid. And then when we went around and talked, and I said, this was the stupidest thing I ever did. And three weeks later, I came back. (laughs) What made you come back? So when I left here, I went on YouTube, and I started listening to a lot of things. I got a better sense of the conceptual underpinnings of it, and I did notice that I felt better. And it, it stayed forced for a really long time. So here I see you guys, and I'm like, oh, they're going to think we're so stupid. And you say this is terrifying. And then I got hysterical laughing watching you two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, your laughter at us seemed pretty authentic. <laughs> the thing about Lisa is she knows that we think she looks completely nuts, and she just doesn't care because it makes her feel better. Absolutely. And it, and it was the moment in the talkback period where I thought like, okay – I, I, I get this. Over time, maybe I would be able to join her. Yeah, and I kind of thought it was a little bit of the placebo effect. You know, she thinks it's making her feel better, so it makes her feel better. And, of course, placebo effects happen all the time, and we're no longer supposed to consider them bogus. But, in fact, uh, Sophie Scott, the neuroscientist, I, I asked her about this, and she said the the effects of laughter are more than just a placebo. It certainly gives you measurable changes in your body's physiology that does relate to mood. So you get a measurable change in pain thresholds when you've been laughing. That seems to be not specific to laughter. That's probably because you're doing quite a lot of exercise within reason Uh when you're laughing. You also get, and this seems to be more specific to laughter, you get a reduction in adrenaline and a longer term reduction in cortisol. And those are both hormones associated with stress. To me, that was a huge deal. The fact that laughter actually can influence your cortisol levels and your adrenaline because those are real hormones in your body that are associated with big changes like how your brain functions and how much belly fat you have. So maybe they're right. Maybe laughter does have a real physical effect. Now, within that, what we don't know is, is that the laughter or is it the fact that pretty much always that laughter is being elicited in a social context? So was I, was I feeling great because I'd been laughing all afternoon? Was it actually because I'd been laughing with two friends all afternoon? And it's very hard to start separating that because if I hadn't been friends. with my friends, I wouldn't right. have laughed that much. Oh, the chickens and the eggs there. Laughter makes us feel better, but maybe it's because we do it most of the time with people we like and like being around. Yeah, but I think we both felt kind of good after that laughter yoga class. We did. I, I admit that. I, we did indeed. And after roaring like a lion with Kurt Anderson, like, I feel bonded. 
Well, Simba, as your Mufasa, <laughs> I'm happy to make you feel that way. And we will always have our laughter yoga to return to in memory. They can't take it away from us. They won't. Thank you, Kurt, for doing this with me. Kurt Anderson is the host of Studio 360. You can hear more about the science of laughter on their show. Check it out at studio360.org. So if the jury's still out on laughter as medicine, what do people laugh at in medicine? Dr. Humor, after the break. Guys, do you remember the presidential physical fitness test from back in elementary school? I do. The pull-ups, the push-ups, sit-ups, then you had to run a mile. Okay, this is your chance to redeem yourself. If you are going to be in New York City this weekend, we are having a meetup in Prospect Park in Brooklyn on Saturday. You can join me and the only human crew while we try to see if we are fitter than our fifth grade selves. And the best part is that after we sweat it out, there is a free concert. We have 10 VIP tickets to see Femi Kuti and the Banshell as part of Celebrate Brooklyn. It's Saturday, July 23rd at 5 o'clock. You can get the details and sign up at onlyhuman.org. We have an eviction epidemic. And too often we fail to grasp what that is and what it isn't. Sometimes when you look at stuff on the news, why is she somewhere on the pole dancing and she should be home with her children? And the answer is, if they feel like I need to get a security deposit, I'm going to go out there and make it happen. I'm Brooke Gladstone with a new series, The Scarlet E, Unmasking America's Eviction Crisis. Listen at onthemedia.org slash eviction. This is Only Human. I'm Mary Harris. So at the top, I said this show was for skeptics. And I think the ultimate skeptics are doctors. They have to keep calm while dealing with so many taboos. So when is it okay for doctors to laugh about their patients? Is it ever okay? Amanda Aronchik went to try to find out. Two healthcare workers are performing in one of those exercises taken from improv theater. Here's the scene. They're Santa's elves, and they're standing side by side, and they're sifting through mail at the North Pole. You know, I have, I have problems with, uh, with, with uh, deep vein thrombosis, and these strange types are just killing me. Turns out, Santa's workshop is a brutal place to work. These letters, if you've ever read any of these, I want a pony. Well, you know what? I don't get health insurance, so cry <laughs> me a river, Sally. Shift right, shift right. The group included a dental student, an OBGYN, physical therapist. There were 35 people in total who came to Chicago to attend medical improv. Mom, um, uh, many of you don't have improv experience, and it is amazing that in these few short days... In these the four-day workshop is the brainchild of Katie Watson. She's a professor of medical bioethics at Northwestern University. And in her slightly less academic life, she teaches improv and sketch comedy at Second City. She has merged her two worlds here, teaching improv techniques to improve communication in the medical field. I think medical encounters 
are often unsuccessful when one person, typically the clinician, tries to impose a script on the patient before they've even walked in the room. She says that's the value of medical improv. It's not comedy camp for doctors, but it's about learning to walk into situations without prejudging, to be open and honest, to listen deeply. Every medical encounter is to some degree improvised because you have two human beings who arrive, hopefully without too much of a script, and they have to develop a shared story. And develop rapport quickly, which often does involve humor. And it gets back to the question that brought me here. How are people in healthcare supposed to figure out when humor is appropriate? When the workshop finished for the day, I asked the group, what was absolutely not funny? I'm Lucy. I'm an emergency physician. And I think what's not funny is when stories are shared outside of the workplace. What's not funny is denying or dismissing anyone's humanity. Absolutely not funny is doing harm. Abuse. Picking on the vulnerable. Making fun of patients. Jokes that have to do with race. Violence of any kind is not funny. So clearly, when it came to joking around, there were a lot of off-limit topics. It's a long, long list, right? It's a long list. So uh, I guess what I'd be curious to know is, like, is there anything that is absolutely always funny? This was a harder question to answer. I want something that's, like, always fine. Like, clowns, always fine. No. No. As a group, they couldn't even agree if farting was always funny. Maybe I was asking the wrong question. Sometimes we use, that's not funny, as a proxy for, that's not okay. And, Watson said, those are not the same thing. So I wanted to try an example with her. This is from a doctor named John. And John didn't want me to use his last name. So you're John. What kind of doctor can I say? I am a urologist. Urologist. Tell me, what does a urologist do? Urinary tract and genital tract. So helping someone who's having trouble peeing or has an issue with their sexual organs. If you really took yourself seriously, you'd probably want to tell people you're a neurosurgeon or, you know, a cardiac surgeon or something like that. If you say you're a, a urologist, oftentimes people will approach that with like, oh, really? But he loves what he does and he wants to help people. He also knows his work can lead to some absurd and humorous moments. I had this kid come in and he said, I think I have a piece of plastic in my bladder. The kid's about 16 years old. I said, well, what makes you think there's a piece of plastic in your bladder? And he said, I was taking a nap, and there was a piece of plastic on my windowsill, and when I woke up, it was gone. The piece of plastic was lost. So John asks the kid, what made you think your bladder is the first place it would be? And he, I don't know, I'm just sure it's up there, okay? So I look up in the kid's bladder, and sure enough, there's a piece of plastic up there. What? That he's shoved up there. Up his penis? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I left the room and just said in passing to a nurse, boy, I hope he doesn't lose his cat. (laughs) (laughs) The doctor says he used a little grasper and he pulled the plastic out and the kid was fine. But is this story funny? Well, you're asking me if it's funny. Yes. Did you think it was funny? Yes. Kudos. (laughs) I laughed. (laughs) Katie Watson said I was asking the wrong question. Is it funny? And that depends on your taste in humor. She said this is a better question. Was it appropriate? I would say yes. I don't have a problem with it because the doctor didn't say it to the patient, said it in the hallway. To me, that's his way of just commenting like that was absurd and then moving on. And it was not meant to be heard by the patient. To say that you can never make a joke outside of earshot I think just goes too far. 
Watson describes this story as being backstage humor between a doctor and a nurse. Backstage is where patients are not and front stage is where they are. Many professions have jokes that they share between just themselves. Teachers, journalists, soldiers. But sometimes the line that divides backstage from front stage gets blurry. Take this story out of Virginia from last year. A man goes to the doctor for a colonoscopy. Sorry, I have so many questions. Okay. The first time doing anything like this. If you didn't catch that, he said, Sorry, I have so many questions. It's the first time I'm doing anything like this. And then he goes under. Later in the car ride home, he gets out his phone and realizes he'd unintentionally recorded the entire procedure. And really, after five minutes of talking to you in pre-op, I wanted to punch you in the face and man you up a little bit. The doctors made fun of his anxieties and that he didn't like watching the needle go in his arm. Well, why are you looking then, retard? That person is naked and unconscious. They're as vulnerable as they ever will be. This situation also presents a dilemma. Are you backstage or are you front stage? The patient had accidentally transgressed what the doctors thought was a safe space. Watson says that's not the problem, though. The doctors weren't joking about last night's episode of Broad City or a panda video. They were joking about the patient. The patient was unconscious, but they're still present. And the doctor's in the midst of his or her work. And I think that that still counts as front stage. So how are people who work in healthcare supposed to navigate this fraught territory? I went back to the improv students. They said humor is really important in their line of work. It makes all of the difficulties tolerable. I think humor is the thing that can be the light in the darkness. Um, Sometimes if you don't laugh, you cry. Lauren, a social worker from Chicago, said humor is inherent in the kind of work she does. Yeah, I think humor and laughter, it's, it's coping. And I work with people with dementia and their families. And in our encounters, everyone's like, oh, that's, that's real. And it is. But in every encounter, there's a moment of laughter. There's a moment of, you know, the surreal that is occurring. So it helps cope. It helps connect. And it helps deal with what's happening. That was the point. Whether it's appropriate or not, humor in medicine is inevitable. Oh, here's one for you. Yeah, let, read it. I want a new kitty cat. <laughs> you know what I wish? I wish I didn't have heart murmurs. That's what I uh, wish. I'm kidding. That was our reporter, Amanda Aronchik. Thank you to Studio 360 for co-producing this episode with us. You guys are awesome. You can check out their show at studio360.org. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Amanda Aronchik, Elaine Chen, Paige Cowett, Julia Longoria, Kenny Malone, Fred Mogul, Lisa Rappaport, and Jillian Weinberger. Our technical director is Casey Means. Our executive producer is Lital Malad. Thanks to Daniel Fox and Stephanie Daniel. Jim Schachter is the vice president of news for WNYC. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you next week. I want to just always have that music. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Torina Endowment Fund, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation. 